It's time for episode 49 of the Clockwise Podcast from your pals at IDG, recorded August 13th, 2014. Clockwise, four guests, four tech topics, 30 minutes. Welcome back to Clockwise, the tech podcast that time forgot. I am your co-host, Dan Morin, and I'm joined across the country, as always, by Jason Snell. Hi, Dan. Hi, Jason. Pleasure to be be back. We remembered Um, this podcast, even if time forgot. (laughs) I am really pleased to be here, and I will note for the record that I am not Philip Michaels. Uh, He has not replaced me, despite threats to the Did you notice? I I wasn't sure you would listen. Oh, Oh, I listened. (laughs) He tried to overthrow you as host. Yeah, yeah. Don't think I won't remember that. He's he's in this office. He could easily get me out of the the way, and it could be him here now. I'm just saying, he'll he'll be the first against the wall when the revolution Mm -hmm. comes. Um, and we're joined, as always, by two very special guests sitting to my left. That's the right direction, right? Left? Sure. <laughs> Virtual left. Right. It's left. Greenbot executive editor Jason Cross is here. Hello, Jason. Hi. It's fun to be back. And we, we have the eternal two Jason problem, which I'm assured is better than one Jason, but, you know, I guess only time will tell. Sitting to <laughs> my left is executive editor, boy, you got a lot of, we're executing lots of editors here, <laughs> of PC World, Melissa Rio Frio. Welcome back. It's great to be here. Well, uh, let's remind our listeners how this show works. Uh, we've each brought a tech topic today that we believe is worth discussing, and in the interest of not wasting anybody's time, we'll limit discussion of each topic to just five minutes. As I am today's designated benevolent co-host, I will go first, and then the action will move clockwise. So, uh, I was going to kick off today by talking about an issue very near and dear to my own heart, which is to say my TV broke. Uh, And I'm very sad about this. So, which one of you is buying me a new TV? No, uh, (laughs) I I started wondering, you know, I started doing some looking around and I wanted to find out if it was possible to repair my TV because it's only a few years old. I I didn't really feel like it was in terrible shape and, and I figured, well, maybe I'll save some money by repairing it. It turns out it's very, very hard to find a place that will repair a, you know, a uh, flat screen TV. Uh, They do exist uh, and depends, of course, whether or not you want to go with sort of like an authorized repair place or not. But the one place I did call to try and get a quote um, never called me back. And I was very sad about that too. But the more I started thinking about it, the more I started wondering, I mean, you know, it's going to cost me at least probably a couple hundred bucks to repair my TV, um, depending on if they can figure out what's wrong with it or not. And a new TV is only like $500. So the question is, have we just sort of entirely lost this culture of repairable items for electronics? Um, you know, I know there are certain things like computers, for example, that oftentimes they will still, you know, are worth doing some tinkering around with and, and fixing things. Um, but a lot of times it seems like if you go in with your phone or something and it's broken, they just give you a new one. Um, and, you know, I wonder if this is the the sort of state of the art now. Is it's, it's not really cost efficient or time efficient to repair things. We should just replace them. So I'm curious to know what you guys think about that. Jason Cross, what about you? Yeah, I think we're at that point. Uh, you know, if you had the warranty or the extended protection plan or something for your TV, they wouldn't fix it. They would just give you a new one and take your old one and send it back for scrap. Uh, the level of integration that we all expect on everything, we expect everything to be so thin and, and have so so much battery and all these other things, These all these things that are hard to do in a easily repairable device. 
Um, and we're not willing to compromise on that stuff. Everybody complains that they can't easily repair something, but then they also don't want to buy anything that's just a little bit thicker or heavier or a little bit less, you know, has a seam in the side of it or any, any of these things. So we've kind of gotten to that point where it's cheaper just to replace it. And now the new thing is to take it upon yourself to make sure that you're getting rid of your old thing in a responsible fashion, that you're sending it back to somewhere where it can be recycled, where all the pieces will be used in a refurb or something like that, where it's not just ending up in some scrap heap. I think that's a better option. I mean, when I when I uh, I I smashed the screen of my iPad and I took it to the. Why did you do that, Jason? I was Why are you really so angry? angry at you, Dan. Um, I, yeah. And and uh, Hulk smash <laughs> and and. Uh, you know, they took it and and they had a. It wasn't cheap, but it wasn't full price to get a replacement for it. And you know what happens to that at that point is all the electronics in it were perfectly fine. Just the screen was bad, and that's not a bad approach because that is what's going to happen. They're going to turn that into a refurb, and they're going to use the pieces that can be used again. And yeah, there are some things that because we want them smaller and thinner and and lighter and and using less battery that they're super integrated and literally. I remember that though when I had my um, I had an Apple II when I was a kid and. Um, at some point, something on the motherboard fried, and like certain things, when the mother, when something on the motherboard fried, you had to get a new motherboard, and it was just mm-hmm. it was going to cost you essentially the cost of the computer, and that was a tragedy. But it was like all integrated, and there was nothing they could do. That it, it it's a consequence. I don't love it. What bothers me is when things are things that can be taken apart and either replace a bit or get you a new one and take that one out to be refurbished. That's when it bugs me. And so, Dan, you know, your TV being dead, your screen is probably fine. It's probably like a little um, a little I, processor card. I honestly or a, think it's the backlight. Or I honestly a power think supply. it's the lamp. Or, or a lamp or something where old, they, yeah. they might be able to replace this part and the rest of the TV might be fine. But, you know, most of us are in a situation where you just put it in the landfill or you could take it to the elect- – ideally take it to the electronics recycling plant where it's shipped overseas right, and, right. and broken down into little parts and its metal is reused or something, which is a shame. I, I had this – my lawnmower um, – had a part break and I thought um, am I going to need to get a new lawn mower because the stupid plastic part broke and the nice thing there is that there are actually internet sites that will let you put in the name of an appliance the model number of an appliance and uh, they've got all the spare parts and so for like 20 bucks they sent me this piece of plastic and I spent half an hour disassembling kind of the handle of my lawn mower and putting it back together and my lawn mower works again so I'm still using this 15 year old lawn mower so the internet can help um, if you want to take it, and I encourage everybody to do that. But yeah, it's so frustrating when people just say, "Oh, one thing broke." Well, f- toss it. It's 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 dead, and that's technology. I think that is the state of the art. Yeah, I mean, with electronics, it might be a little thing that's stuck on a board, and if it's dead, the whole thing's dead. The whole thing's dead. It's gone. It's not like my 1972 Ford Galaxy, which I must bring up whenever possible, where I could practically camp in the engine compartment next to the engine. Mm. And so you could crawl in cold. there, do stuff in. Oh, yeah. yeah that I mean, that's really. why you turn the engine on. Yeah. Or even your 15-year-old lawnmower. You know, it's, it's, it's a little mechanical part that you can put in there, but that's not true for most of the stuff that we use now. Mine was a, a plastic part, too. So um, if I had a that's 3D printer, I could just 3D print the part. <laughs> yeah, sure. Oh, uh, well, that's a whole, new, a whole new legal situation that we've opened up there. <laughs> no, I, it is really sad. I mean, like, I'm really sad about this TV because, again, like you guys saying, like, uh, you know, I, I work a lot with technology and obviously I know how to fix some things. But I feel as though things, you know, as time has gone on and 
as Jason Cross said, you know, when things get smaller and smaller, more miniaturized and more specialized, it's really hard, you know, and it doesn't come up that often that I want to repair something. But in a case like this, you know, I, I'm, for one thing, I don't even know where to start on this. You know, I like Googled around a little bit to find if anybody had had similar problems. And, you know, it seems like most people just ditch their old device and get a new one. And it, it makes me, me sad to feel like then I have to get rid of this one. It's such a hassle. And, and shopping for new TVs is such a hassle. But yeah, I'm, I'm kind of content to repair things if I can just to not incur more waste. But it seems like it's just more and more difficult to do. So thank you all for just sympathizing with me in my time of need. I really appreciate it. Uh, Jason Cross, do you have a topic for us today? I do. Have you guys seen the uh, Surface 3 commercials, the Surface Pro 3 commercials? They are um, side by side with an iPad Air com- directly comparing, oh, uh, I want to do this. Oh, well, I can do that better. I can use a pen, all these other things, you know. Uh, this is nothing new in our industry. But I wanted to get your opinion on these sort of directly sort of trash-talking a competitor's product, uh, whether you think they're, you know, kind of, is this, first of all, do you think it's effective? I mean, we've seen it for a long time. We saw, there's the famous John Hodgman, you know, I'm a PC commercials that ran for years. Um, and whether you think that these are, is this, does it sour your opinion of the company to see them trash-talk a competitor like that? Um Jason, I, I don't I don't think as long as they're telling the truth and they're pointing out where they're better. I mean, this is this is definitely more John Gruber pointed this out on Daring Fireball last week that this is definitely more of a you feel like you are taking shots at the leader kind mm-hmm. of kind of approach. Absolutely. When you're saying, look, we do things better than the leader. And if you can say it, I roll my eyes at, at these ads when um, I think that they're being disingenuous and that they don't really have advantages and they're trying to make things up. But, you know, in the case of the Surface, I mean, the Surface is a full PC. I, we can argue about whether it's a toaster fridge, whether it's sort of too many things put in one right. little case, but it has distinct advantages over the iPad if you approach it in a certain way. And, and as Microsoft being a company that's trying to get traction with this product that feels different from other products, I don't have a problem with it at all. I, I My problem is when it's disingenuous or um, trying, yeah, like it's trying to fool people and, and saying like, well, you know, those you know the, that product doesn't do something it does, or those people aren't cool when they use that product, which is you know who gets to decide whether it's cool or not. Um, like some of the Samsung ads, that those kind of bug me more. But right, I, I don't know if you're if you're if you're trying to take shots at the leader, and I think that's what the Mac versus PC ads were sort of doing is saying you know you know we you don't you might not consider us, but we've got lots of advantages over the thing you're you're using today, and I think that's effective as long as it's true, I guess, and that's when that's where I would draw the line. Well, and there's some new commercials where it's compared to the MacBook Air as well. Right. Oh, that, that's those are the ones I was referring yeah. to. I didn't see anywhere they compare it to the iPad. Yeah, yeah. It's the MacBook Air. And mm-hmm. so... Um, well, say, yeah, same point goes with either one, right? Neither sure. of those Apple products does what the Surface does. I, I thought they had done an iPad entirely. one earlier this... Or like last year or something. Yeah, there there was one, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of interesting now because then it's on both sides. Like, yeah. Tablet yeah. <laughs> well, now they're trying to say, well, never mind, it's a tablet, it's really a PC, and mm-hmm. look, we're comparing it to this other MacBook Air PC. Which I think is a stronger argument, honestly. Oh, yeah, no, oh, yeah. I, we totally agree. <laughs> and, you know, the MacBook Air doesn't have a touchscreen. The Surface does. I mean, they're obviously, it's a Microsoft commercial, so they're kind of skimming over some other things that the MacBook Air does better. But, hey, it's a Microsoft commercial. So, um, 
I, I agree. It's I think it's a better comparison than to the iPad Air. Um, the Surface is trying to be a computer that you can configure a little bit more to your liking. So I think it's fair, fairer than the iPad commercials they had before. I, you know, it's interesting because it is to me. It's like a soundbitey version of the like the bullet list feature list, right? Where it's like, oh yes, compare two products. Our product has all of these features, and the opposing product only has some of these features. And of course, you know, the question is, well, what things do you pull out? And certainly, there are advantages in both cases. But you know, it's an ad at the end of the day, sure, as these all are. And and that's you know that's what you're going to do in an ad. You're not going to say like our thing can do this, but it can't do all these things that our competitors can do. Uh, I mean, if you do that, that would be bold. But you're I feel like wrong. probably a bad advertisement. Um, I agree. I think the Samsung ones are more annoying because they you know the, the attitude is just it's much snarkier in a way that is seems kind of jerky. Um, and you could say that about, I guess, the Mac and PC ads too, except I felt like those usually at least had some humorous value to them. Um, the Surface ones, I don't know, they don't bother me. I think that these are very, these are different products for different uh, use cases. And if Microsoft's, you know, out there to say, this is this is what we're doing with these ads, then I think those are better ads than the ones with the Surface ads where everybody's just dancing, because that doesn't really sell me on anything. <laughs> uh, am I going to be an awesome dancer when I get a Surface? I mean, if so, then those ads are very, very convincing. I also feel like the, the these ads that we've said are good are are the message they're making is please consider us we have things to offer sure and yeah. when Dan mentions the the Samsung ads Samsung ads never felt like that to me the Samsung ads were like we're awesome now and our competitors aren't and it's like as a as a viewer I was like I don't think I believe you but but saying please consider us and coming with that attitude seemed to make a difference like we have something too please think about us yeah, yeah. there's there's there was the Samsung ad uh, the wall huggers ad where they show all the iPhone people who have to keep like in the airport, keep being near the plug all the time, which really rings true for people because I, you see that like every, that's the prime I am spot, that guy, yep. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and those aren't nearly as bad as the ones where they make fun of all the people standing in line. Yes, yeah. like your product is popular, haha. You have fans. <laughs> like it's, it's, it seems Ouch. really or, sick burn. <laughs> yeah, it's making fun of the fans for being like stupid for standing in line for a thing that they love. Like, and those are your are those your potential customers? Yeah, like right. that's the worst part right like it's like yeah. those are the people you're trying to sell on this and it's like am i gonna go buy a phone from the guys who are making fun of me like right. that seems like a terrible they, idea they have a more recent one uh, where they say like oh you've been waiting for a bigger screen size and it's been here all along and it's you know it's got some guy they're holding up their phones comparing and oh you must be really happy that a bigger phone's coming i have to go use my awesome samsung phone now mm. again really kind of tasteless making fun of the people who are using the other right. products instead of comparing the products? So, yeah, bad Samsung. <laughs> but to Microsoft, I, I think they're, I think they're, you know, and and it's advertising. You can agree or disagree sure. with what they're saying, but I like that. I like the. I think they're good ads, and it's, they're saying here's what we do. They're fair, yeah. That they don't do, right? And that's what an ad should do. I think. Yep. All right, uh, I think it means that means it's my turn. Yes. So I will go, and we're roughly halfway through the show. So that is, uh, we're making good time here, everybody. Good job, Woo! everybody. Uh, here, my, my question, I was getting in on Twitter with a guy over the weekend about um, uh, this Amazon pricing thing. Amazon is going back and forth with book publishers and saying they're they're championing uh, the con- what consumers want, which is cheaper books, and that the publishers are the big, the big bad here. And I'm kind of of the opinion that there are no good guys and bad guys in this scenario, that Amazon is a very, is acting in its own self-interest and trying to cloak itself in the interests of consumers when in fact it's trying to build this incredible essentially monopoly so that it can bring down the ha- 
hammer on consumers later. And publishers are not to blame. They are out of step with uh, the way technology works and trying to take advantage of the situation in ways that help their business but don't necessarily help consumers or writers either. However, the thing that set me off on Twitter was a guy who said to me, um, I believe the natural price of an ebook is between 99 cents and $5. And uh, this is the question I had for you is, you know, at the heart of this, a lot of this is an argument that books in paper used to cost, if it was a hardcover, a lot of money, 20 bucks, 25 bucks list price. And Amazon keeps saying, we want to f- not let the publisher set the price. And we think that if you set it at $10 or below, you'll make more money because more people will buy the books. So in the end, it, this, this is an argument about a lot of things, but it is a it is the, the football that's being thrown around is the, what books cost. And that's what I wanted to ask you guys is what is the value of an ebook and in your mind compared to other kinds of books what is what should it be worth and and, and why does it have a value melissa well 99 cents to 5 dollars is ridiculous and i'm probably a little biased that's because, what i said <laughs> because i'm a writer it's like you're uh-huh. kidding right um, and, uh, you know, we've had to face questions about the price and the value of our work for many years now. <laughs> yep. So, um, indeed, indeed, they're just words, <laughs> Melissa, how much words cost you? <laughs> so does an ebook have, I mean, it's convenient if you are reading on a device, you yeah. don't have to have the paper. So there's some convenience exactly. that would presumably make it more valuable, but now it's going to sell for less. So I, I, I yeah. just, you know, do they, what's my feeling is obviously it's that there is an obvious to its costing less because you're not killing a tree producing a book and that's better for the trees I'm all for that but uh, you know that would maybe knock to me half the price off of what the book would be worth if it were paper you know what this reminds me of is whenever we see those reports um, after a new device comes out and the companies that break them down and, and like do the bill of sale thing like oh this piece costs this much and this piece costs this much yeah. therefore it only costs you x hundred dollars to make this phone and it's like you know, well, what about all the people who make that phone who need to get paid? What about all the things that aren't factored into that, like marketing and research and design? And in the case of books, editors, artists, publishers, you know, uh, marketers, all these people who work for these these companies. I mean, the real expense is not necessarily printing a bunch of books, though that costs money. The real expense is having a business that you keep in, you know, like keep sustainable. So I, I think it's kind of a false equivalency to say that it's like, uh, you know, this is just we've removed this part of the equation. Therefore, the book should cost X percent less. Um, you know, I think there's an argument for uh, for production costs. And in the same way that we've dealt with, you know, like hardcovers and paperbacks, right? Like paperbacks are cheaper than hardcovers because they're not as, you know, high quality. Um, and they're convenient. They fit in your pocket and all that thing. Uh, and I think ebooks are very, very similar to sort of the, the paperbacks of, of yesteryear. Um, but it's hard to necessarily just say, oh, we removed this chunk of this. Therefore, that all that money is freed up because that's not how business works. Uh, it, there's a lot of moving pieces here. Uh, you know, books books are made of paper and are heavy, and you have to make a bunch and ship a bunch, yeah. which is expensive. There are real incremental costs for every book. Yeah, you know, and you have to make book. more than you sell, and they have to sit in a store, which costs money, and you have to sell people. Just you have to pay people just to sell those books, which you don't have to do for ebook. I mean, there's all these incremental costs mm-hmm. for paper that you don't have for ebooks. So then you you can't say when you cut out those costs, the take that the bookstore gets, and all those those are you know pieces. You know, you certainly get down to at least half of what you know a paperback or, or hardbound book costs. 
just getting down to what's the publisher and author's take. I, but I think that's probably skewed wrong. I think the publisher and the author probably get the wrong percentages yeah. when you start and talk about an ebook. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because the publisher has to do a lot less. They're not. They're not. They don't have a distribution network to offer. You know, Amazon or somebody does. So, uh, I think the right price is probably less than half. But I don't know what it is. <laughs> and. and I know I personally don't buy a lot of ebooks that cost more than five bucks. I usually wait till there's a sale or something because I'm just not that big a reader. I think ultimately the solution to this is can be found in things like music and starting to be in things like games where you have uh, yeah there's this new EA access program and stuff where it's it's not about trying to find the per item cost of something. It's thinking about it like a service. If I'm a reader, just let me pay dollars a month and read all I want. The value of a book is what anybody will pay for it. And um, if you, uh, the reason we had hardcovers and paperbacks before was because they wanted the people who were most excited about buying the book to pay more for it up front. And then the price dropped over time, which was actually a pretty natural thing. And I think happens in ebooks too and I think is a good approach. And the only other thing I'll say, you, you, you made all these all these points really well. I, the one thing I wanted to add is I think people fundamentally have a confusion about uh, incremental costs versus fixed costs. And mm-hmm. they see the fixed costs uh, – they see the incremental costs and they think that's the cost of the product and they miss the fixed costs. They miss the – um, the setup costs that go into any one book, and that is the writer and the po- and the copy editor and the publisher and the marketing of the book and all of those things. That the, that's before any copies are sold. It has a cost, mm-hmm. and if you sell a billion of them, then you can price it at two dollars, and that's fine because you'll make a lot of money. But if you're only going to sell five thousand of them, uh, you've got to earn back your startup cost and then make some more money, and and that's going to cost more. And and um, if you say a book should never be more than you know one or two dollars, you are misunderstanding. Uh, yes, it's cheaper to make an ebook, but it's not free to make an ebook. So, Melissa, you get the last topic. What would you like yes. to talk about? And it's about another kind of book and the kind of value <laughs> that uh, people might think it has. So, um, this week, uh, Acer introduced the Chromebook 13, and it's another Chromebook. But this one has a pretty rip-roaring CPU in it that has 192 graphics cores plus four CPUs and even a fifth core that does sort of basic web browsing things while saving battery life. Uh, Plus, uh, there's a version of the Chromebook that has a full HD display, which is pretty cool because most Chromebook displays are 1366 by 768. And if I never see another one of those, I'll be very happy. So um, uh, I've been covering Chromebooks for two years. I think that this Chromebook represents a really interesting generational shift where – they're saying, look, this this uh, Chromebook can do all this amazing 3D graphics and things. Um, but I want to know from the rest of you, do you think you need that in what is basically a web-based OS? Go for it. Dan? Well, I yeah, I don't know. It seems like overkill. Granted, a lot of stuff's on the web these days, and therefore, and, and, and they're increasing capabilities of what you can do or deliver in a web browser. Um, so that there's certainly a lot of opportunity to do things like, you know, heavy graphics and, and you know, more computationally intensive things. Um, at the same time, it does seem like it might be overkill. 
Um, and I can't, I mean, I haven't spent enough time with the Chromebook to really know what people do it, but I feel like when I talk to people about what they want to use a Chromebook for, it's, you know, email, web browsing, that kind of stuff. So a lot of this seems like it's, it, it seems like an interesting attempt to sort of steal market from both the traditional PC, you know, just the laptop market, as well as from the tablet market. Um, by sort of bridging that, like, let's add more power, um, but let's, you know, keep it more manageable and like sort of a still a lighter use device. Um, I would be worried about battery power because I feel like that's one area. And I know you said they're, they're doing some stuff to sort of compensate for that. But I feel like that's one big problem with adding stuff that's a lot more high powered is sucking down battery life, especially something with like an HD screen um, certainly could take a toll on that. And I feel like in the end, people who are using something like a Chromebook might be more affected by lower battery life than they would be by, you know, willing to make that trade-off for higher performance graphics and, and better looking, uh, you know, better, more powerful devices. So I don't know, it seems like a tricky trade-off and I, I don't know if the Chromebook has quite found its, its niche yet, but um, I'm sure there are some people this will appeal to. Uh, I don't, well, well, first of all, the Tiger K1 in a Chromebook, that's fine. It's as far as CPU stuff and everything, it's not that much better than the current, best of breed arm chips it has a lot of graphics power but like you said it's a web based os in a lot of ways and that's not really very doesn't push graphics a lot chrome's you know 3d accelerated in some ways so you get some nice smooth scrolling and stuff but it's not a that big a deal uh they could have done an hd screen with previous generation arm chips just fine they've been doing it on phones uh and the battery life will be good compared to putting an intel like core i5 or something in there but I don't know why – I still don't know why Chrome OS exists when <laughs> they'd be much better off having sort of the a, – a, kind of a laptop mode to yeah, Android, Android yeah. which already does – you know, now especially does windowing, runs Chrome, runs all these other apps just as well, does a lot of the other stuff that – you know, and, and has file managers and all the other stuff that they keep trying to get to in a good way with Chrome kind of already exists in Android. And I don't really know. It's 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 a confusing thing why Google's doing both of these products when they could probably much more simply and have a much more satisfying product just doing a oh this is on a device with like a keyboard and a touchpad kind of mode for Android. Yeah, I, I mean I know they've said that you'll be able to run Android apps at some point on in, in Chrome OS, and it maybe maybe now they will start to come together now that Google structurally can accept it. And I think that would be cool because that was my initial thought was, well, it's great that they've got this graphics power, but what can you do? I, I have a Chromebook Pixel and I hacked it to install all the Linux stuff. And so I've got a, I've got a Linux, it's in a developer mode and you flip a couple of buttons and you're in a Linux desktop and you can run Minecraft. Woo! Awesome. My kids were really excited about that. And then there's graphics on it. But on the web, in just Chrome tabs, I, I don't... I don't see the need. So I'm, I'm with Jason. I think Chrome is fascinating. If you're somebody who just lives on the web and is using web apps, um, you could probably just use it and be perfectly happy because I do media stuff and audio editing and things. It's it's harder. But, but yeah, you look at the opportunity to take all the features that are in Android and and, and mix them in there and it would be – it would seem to me to be more compelling that way. So that's – you know, I, I'm fascinated by Chromebooks as I know you are, Melissa, and I think it's a really interesting category. But I, I – that functionality question about whether they roll it more into something that's like an Android uh, thing rather than just a bare web browser is is hanging over the whole thing, I think. But I think it's great that you get a, uh, 
device with this power that's and they're cheap too. I think they're really eating yeah. the lunch of cheap Windows laptops and mm-hmm. that's uh, that's really interesting too. And for the people who are buying them, they probably don't need much more than this. Yeah, I mean, we could have completely different conversations about Chrome versus Android, Chrome versus yeah, Windows. Yeah, there's a whole show. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there, well, special clockwise in the future. Dan, we're almost out of time. Do you have a bonus for us? I do have a quick bonus. I was on vacation last week, and as I was sitting around a, a lake house with some of my family, we did our traditional after-dinner ritual of playing cards, and our game of choice is a trick-based game called Oh Hell, which I've been playing since I was a little kid. I was curious to know if you guys had any particular go-to card games. Jason Cross? I played a ton of cards when I was in college. We played a lot of spades and a Midwest game called Euchre. Euchre. Which is really great. Very, very fast uh, trick-based game. And uh, my family's from Louisiana, and there's a uh, trick-based game down there that's a gambling trick-based game called Bure. Uh, and if you can look that up, that is a hoot to play. You got to get down, get, sit around with a whole bunch of your buddies. You need a lot of people to play it because a lot of people don't uh, choose not to play a hand. So you really need like six to eight people to, to play it, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, Dan, I think my my go-to game is your go-to game. We call it 717 instead of Oh Hell, but it's the same huh. thing. Where It's trick-taking, and you try not to take the tricks, and you go from seven cards down to one and yeah, back yeah. up to seven. And the one-card hand is hilarious because you put it on yes. your forehead, and you have to bid based <laughs> yeah, on everyone else's that. cards. And it's a great game. So that's, that's it. And, and I would say um, uh, you know, Hearts is always good, too. But, but the, that 717 Oh Hell, is, that's ours, too. Uh, I had a traumatic experience on another summer vacation uh, being taught bridge by my bridge-playing in-laws. Man, people get really <laughs> incensed about bridge. Yeah, they, they, bridge is serious. They, they do get angry. Serious. Yes. Yeah, I don't yeah. mess around with that. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. I got I, I got to look up Boo Ray now. Thanks, Jason. I, I That sounds really cool. Yeah. It's um, spelled the Cajun way. Yeah, I found so, it. I found yeah. it. It took me a little tricky. It's Fortunately, Google's smart. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All right, excellent. Well, we've been carefully watching the clock, and that's literally all the time we have. Jason Cross, thank you for being here. Oh, thanks so much. It's so much fun. And Melissa Rio Frio, thank you for being here. It was a pleasure. When it comes time for you to execute editors, I suggest Dan. <laughs> Damn Welcome it. back, Dan. Yay. And uh, all of us here at Clockwise, me, Dan, maybe Philip Michaels too, who knows what the future holds, uh, remind you once again, watch what you say. And keep watching Phil Michaels. I got my eye on you. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.